Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. Today's show, it's going to be part three of the Missouri v. Biden uh, lawsuit, which was just recently stayed, so it's moving up to, to I think, the Fifth Circuit now. Um, so uh, interesting things are happening, but it's moving up through the courts. But uh, back to page 68, it'll probably take four parts. E, SISA defendants. The deposition of Brian Scully was taken on January 12th, 2023, as part of the injunction-related discovery in this matter. The SISA regularly meets with social media platforms and several types of standing meetings. Scully is the chief of SISA's Miss, Dis, and Mal Information Team, or MDM Team. Prior to President Biden taking office, the MDM Team was known as the Countering Foreign Influence Task Force. Pretentis is the engagement's lead for the MDM team, and she is in charge of outreach and engagement to key stakeholders, interagency partners, and private sector partners, which includes social media platforms. Scully performed Pretentis's duties while she was on maternity leave. Both Scully and Pretentis have done extended detail at the National Security Council, where they work on misinformation and disinformation issues. Scully testified that during 2020, the MDM team did switchboard work on behalf of election officials. Switchboarding is a disinformation reporting system provided by CISA that allows state and local election officials to identify something on social media they deem to be disinformation aimed at their jurisdiction. The officials would then forward the information to CISA, which would in turn share the information with the social media companies. The main idea, according to Scully, is that the information would be forwarded to social media platforms which would make decisions on the content based on their policies. Scully further testified that he decided in late April or early May 2022 not to perform switchboarding in 2022. However, the CISA website states the MDM team serves as a switchboard for routing disinformation concerns to social media platforms. The switchboarding activities began in 2018. The MDM team continues to communicate regularly with social media platforms in two different ways. The first way is called industry meetings. The industry meetings are regular sync meetings between government and industry, including social media platforms. The second type of communication involves the MDM team reviewing regular reports from social media platforms about changes to their censorship policies or to their enforcement actions on censorship. The industry meetings began in 2018 and continue to this day. These meetings increase in frequency as each election nears. In 2022, the industry meetings were monthly but increased biweekly in October 2022. Government participants in the USG industry meetings are CISA, the Department of Justice, ODNI, and the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. CISA is typically represented by Scully and Hale. Scully's role is to oversee and facilitate the meetings. Wyman, Snell, and Pretentis also participate in the meetings on behalf of CISA. On behalf of the FBI, FITF Chief, Demlo, Chan, and others from the FBI participate. In addition to the industry meetings, CISA hosts at least two planning meetings, one between CISA and Facebook, and an interagency meeting between CISA and other participating federal agencies. The social media platforms attending the industry meetings include Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, Google, YouTube, Reddit, LinkedIn, and sometimes the Wikipedia Foundation. At the industry meetings, participants discuss concerns about misinformation and disinformation. 
the federal officials report their concerns over the spread of disinformation. The social media platforms, in turn, report to federal officials about disinformation trends, share high-level trend information, and report the actions they are taking. Scully testified that the specific discussion of foreign originating information is ultimately targeted at preventing domestic actors from engaging this information. CISA had established relationships with researchers at Stanford University, the University of Washington, and Graphica. All three are involved in the Election Integrity Partnership, EIP. When the EIP was starting up, CISA interns came up with the idea of having some communications with the EIP. CISA began having communications with the EIP, and CISA connected the EIP with the Center for Internet Security, CIS. The CIS is the CISA-funded nonprofit that channels reports of disinformation from state and local government officials to social media platforms. The CISA interns who originated the idea of working with the EIP also worked for the Stanford Internet Observatory, another part of the EIP. CISA had meetings with Stanford Internet Observatory officials, and eventually both sides decided to work together. The gap that the EIP was designed to fill concerned state and local officials' lack of resources to monitor and report on disinformation that affects their jurisdictions. The EIP continued to operate during the 2022 election cycle. At the beginning of the election cycle, the EIP gave Scully and Hale, on behalf of CISA, a briefing in May or June of 2022. In the briefing, DeResta walked through what the plans were for 2022 and some lessons learned from 2020. The EIP was going to support state and local election officials in 2022. The CIS is a nonprofit that oversees the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, MSISAC, and the Election Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the EIISAC. Both MSIAC and EIISAC are organizations of state and or local government officials created for the purpose of information sharing. CISA funds the CIS through a series of grants. The CISA also directs state and local officials to the CIS as an alternative route to switchboarding. CISA connected the CIS with the EIP because the EIP was working on the same mission, and it wanted to make sure they were all connected. Therefore, CISA originated and set up collaborations between local government officials and CIS between the EIP and CIS. That's a bunch of gobbledygook acronyms. CIS worked closely with CISA in reporting misinformation to social media platforms. It's intentional. CIS would receive the reports directly from election officials and would forward this information to CISA. CISA would then forward the information to the applicable social media platforms. CIS later began to report the misinformation directly to social media platforms. The EIP also reported misinformation to social media platforms. CISA served as a mediating role between CIS and EIP to coordinate their efforts in reporting misinformation to the platforms. There were also direct email communications between the EIP and CISA about reporting misinformation. When CISA reported misinformation to social media platforms, CISA would generally copy the CIS, who, as stated above, was coordinating with the EIP. Stamos and DeResta of the Stanford Internet Observatory briefed Scully about the EIP report, The Long Fuse, in late spring or summer of 2021. Scully also reviewed copies of that report. Stamos and DeResta have also roles in CISA. DeResta serves as subject matter expert for CISA's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee, MDM subcommittee. Stamos serves on the CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee, as does Car Kate Starbird of the University of Washington. 
Stamos identified the EIP's partners in government as CSISA, DHS, and state and local officials. According to Stamos, the EIP targeted large-following political partisans who were spreading misinformation intentionally. CISA's Masterson was also involved in communicating with the EIP. Masterson and Scully questioned EIP about their statements on election-related information. Sanderson left CISA in January 2021, was a fellow at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and began working for Microsoft in early 2022. CISA received misinformation principally from two sources, the CIS directly from state and local election officials, and information sent directly to a CISA employee. CISA shared information with the EIP and the CIS. CISA did not do an analysis to determine what percentage of misinformation was foreign-derived. Therefore, CISA forwards reports of information to social media platforms without determining whether they originated from foreign or domestic sources. Very important. They just forwarded on to social media. The Virality Project was created by the Stanford Internet Observatory to mimic the EIP for COVID. As previously stated, Stamos and DeResta of the Stanford Internet Observatory were involved in the Virality Project. Stamos gave Scully an overview of what they planned to do with the Virality Project, similar to what they did with the EIP. Scully also had conversations with DeResta about the Virality Project. DeResta noted the Virality Project was established on the heels of the EIP, following its success in order to support government health officials' efforts to combat misinformation targeting COVID-19 vaccines. According to DeResta, the EIP was designed to get around unclear legal authorities, including very real First Amendment questions that would arise if CISA or other government agencies were to monitor and flag information for censorship on social media. First Amendment, interesting, so they knew it. The CIS coordinated with the EIP regarding online misinformation and reported it to CISA. The EIP was using a ticketing system to track misinformation. Scully asked the social media platforms to report back on how they were handling reports of misinformation and disinformation received from CISA. CISA maintained a tracking spreadsheet of its misinformation reports to social media platforms during the 2020 election cycle. At least six members of the MDM team, including Scully, took shifts in the switchboarding operation, reporting disinformation to social media platforms. The others were Josiah, Shal, Zahir, Stafford, and Lowery. Lowery and Zahir were simultaneously serving as interns for CISA and working for the Stanford Internet Observatory, which was the operating the EIP. Therefore, Zahir and Lowery will simultaneously engage in reporting misinformation to social media platforms on behalf of both CISA and the EIP. Zahir and Lowery were also two of the four Stanford interns who came up with the idea for the EIP. The CISA switchboarding operation ramped up as the election drew near. Those working on the switchboarding operation worked tirelessly on election night. They would also monitor their phones for disinformation reports, even during off hours, so they could forward disinformation to the social media platforms. As an example, Zahir, when switchboarding for CISA, forwarded supposed misinformation to CISA's reporting system because the user had claimed mail-in voting is insecure and that conspiracy theories about election fraud are hard to discount. CISA's tracking spreadsheet contains at least seven, 11 entries of switchboarding reports of misinformation that CISA received directly from EIP and forwarded to social media platforms to review under their policies. One of these reports was reported to Twitter for censorship because EIP saw an article on the Gateway Pundit run by plaintiff Jim Hoft. 
Scully admitted that CISA engaged in informal fact-checking to determine whether a claim was true or not. CISA would do its own research and relay statements from public officials to help debunk postings for social media platforms. In debunking information, CISA apparently always assumed the government official was a reliable source. CISA would not do further research to determine whether the private citizen posting the information was correct or not. CISA's switchboarding activities reported private and public postings. Social media platforms responded swiftly to CISA's reports of misinformation. CISA, in its interrogatory responses, disclosed five sets of recurring meetings with social media platforms that involved discussions of misinformation, disinformation, and or censorship of speech on social media. CISA had also had bilateral meetings between CISA and the social media companies. Scully does not recall whether hack and leak or hack and dump operations were raised at industry meetings, but does not deny it either. <clears throat> However, several emails confirm that hack and leak operations were on the agenda for the industry meeting on September 15th, 2020 and July 15th, 2020. In the spring and summer of 2022, CISA's Protentis requested that social media platforms prepare a one-page document that sets forth their content moderation rules that could then be shared with election officials, which also included steps for flagging or escalating MDM content and how to report misinformation. Protentis referred to the working group, which included Facebook and CISA's Hale and as Team CISA. The Center for Internet Security continued to report misinformation to social media platforms during the 2022 election cycle. CISA had teamed up directly with the State Department's Global Engagement Center to seek review of social media content. CISA also flagged for review parody and joke accounts. Social media platforms report to CISA when they update their content moderation policies to make them more restrictive. CISA publicly stated that it is expanding its efforts to fight disinformation hacking in the 2024 election cycle. A draft copy of the DHS's Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, which outlines the department's strategy and priorities in upcoming years, states that the department plans to target inaccurate information on a wide range of topics, including the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of the United States' support of Ukraine. Scully also testified that CISA engages with the CDC and DHS to help them in their efforts to stop the spread of disinformation. The examples given were about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On November 21, 2021, CISA Director Easterly reported that CISA is beefing up its misinformation and disinformation team in wake of a diverse presidential election, a proliferation of misleading information online. Easterly stated she was going to grow and strengthen CISA's misinformation and disinformation team. She further stated, we live in a world where people talk about alternative facts, post truth, which I think is really, really dangerous if people get to pick their own facts. Well, Easterly also views the word infrastructure very expansively, stating, we're in the business of protecting critical infrastructure, and the most critical is our cognitive infrastructure. Wow. Scully agrees with the assessment that CISA has an expansive mandate to address all kinds of misinformation that may affect control and that could indirectly cause national security concerns. On June 22, 2022, CISA's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee issued a draft report to the director, which broadened infrastructure to include the spread of false and misleading information information 
because it poses a significant risk to critical in function like elections, public health, financial services, and emergency responses. In September 2022, the CIS was working on a portal for government officials to report election-related misinformation to social media platforms. That work continues today. State Department defendants, the GEC. Daniel Kimmage is the principal deputy coordinator of the State Department's Global Engagement Center. The GEC's front office and senior leadership meets with social media platforms every few months, sometimes quarterly. The meetings focus on the tools and techniques of stopping the spread of misinformation on social media, but they rarely discuss specific content that is posted. Additionally, the GEC has a technology engagement team, TET, that also meets with social media companies. The TET meets more frequently than the GEC. Kimmage recalls two meetings with Twitter. At these meetings, the GEC would bring between five and ten people, including Kimmage, one or more deputy coordinators, and team chiefs from the GEC and working-level staff with relevant subject matter expertise. The GEC staff would meet with Twitter's content mediation teams, and the GEC would provide an overview of what it was seeing in terms of foreign propaganda and information. Twitter would then discuss similar topics. The GEC's senior leadership also had similar meetings with Facebook and Google. Similar numbers of people were brought to these meetings by GEC, and similar topics were discussed. Facebook and Google also brought their content moderator teams. Sam Rudin Stewart was the GEC's senior advisor who was a permanent liaison in Silicon Valley for the purpose of meeting with social media platforms about disinformation. Stewart set up a series of meetings with LinkedIn to discuss countering disinformation and to explore shared interests and alignment of mutual goals regarding the challenge. The GEC also coordinated with CISA and the EIP. Kimmage testified that GEC had a general engagement with the EIP. On October 17, 2022, at an event at Stanford University, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken mentioned the GEC and stated that the State Department was engaging in collaboration and building partnerships with institutions like Stanford to combat the spread of propaganda. Specifically, he stated... We have something called the Global Engagement Center that's working on this every single day. Wow. Like the CISA, the GEC works through CISA-funded EIISAC and works closely with the Stanford Internet Observatory and the Virality Project. The EIP is partially funded by the United States National Science Foundation through grants. Like its work with CISA, the EIP, according to DiResta, was designed to get around unclear legal authorities, including for very real First Amendment questions that would arise if CISA or other government agencies were to monitor and flag information for censorship on social media. You knew it. It's criminal. The EIP's focus was on understanding misinformation and disinformation in the social media landscape, and it successfully pushed social media platforms to adopt more restrictive policies about election-related speech in 2020. The government agencies that work with and submit alleged disinformation to the EIP are CISA, the State Department Global Engagement Center, and the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center. The EIP report further states that the EIP used a tiered model based on tickets collected internally from and from stakeholders. The tickets also related to domestic speech by American citizens, including accounts belonging to media outlets, social media influencers, and political figures. The EIP further emphasized it wanted greater access to social media platforms internal data, and recommended that the platforms increase their enforcement of censorship policies. 
The EIP was formed on July 26, 2020, 100 days before the November 2020 election. On July 9, 2020, the Stanford Internet Observatory presented the EIP concept to CISA. The EIP team was led by Research Manager, Manager DeResta, Director Stamos, and the University of Washington Starbird. EIP's managers both report misinformation to platforms and communicate with government partners about their misinformation reports. EIP team members were divided into tiers of on-call shifts. Each shift was four hours long and led by one on-call manager. The shifts ranged from five to 20 people. Normal scheduled shifts ran from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., ramping up to 16 to 20 hours a day during the week of the election. Social media platforms that participated in the EIP were Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, Nextdoor, Discord, and Pinterest. In the 2020 election cycle, the EIP processed through 639 tickets, 72 of which were related to delegitimizing the election results. Mine was probably one of those tickets. Overall, the social media platforms took action on 35% of the URLs reported to them. One ticket could include an entire idea or narrative and was not always just one post. Less than 1% of the tickets related to foreign interference. Wow. The EIP found that the Gateway Pundit was one of the top misinformation websites, allegedly involving the exaggeration of the input of an issue in the election process. The EIP did not say that the information was false. The EIP report cites the Gateway Pundit 47 times. The GEC was engaging with the EIP and submitted tickets. The tickets and URLs encompassed millions of social media posts, with almost 22 million posts on Twitter alone. The EIP sometimes treats as misinformation truthful reports that the EIP believes lack broader context. Wow, let's go do that again. The EIP sometimes treats as misinformation truthful reports that the EIP believes lack broader context. The EIP stated influential accounts on the political right were responsible for the most widely spread or of false or misleading information in our data set. Further, the EIP stated that 21 most Prominent report spreaders on Twitter included political figures and organizations, partisan media outlets, and social media stars. Specifically, the EIP stated all 21 of the repeat spreaders were associated with conservative or right-wing political views in support of President Trump. The Gateway Pundit was listed as the second-ranked repeat spreader of election misinformation on Twitter. During the 2020 election cycle, the EIP flagged the Gateway Pundit in 25 incidents with over 200,000 retweets. The Gateway Pundit ranked above Donald Trump, Eric Trump, Breitbart News, and Sean Hannity. The Gateway Pundit's website was listed as the domain cited in the most incidents. Its website content was tweeted by others in 29,000 original tweets and 840,000 retweets. The Gateway Pundit ranked above Fox News, the New York Post, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. The EIP also notes that Twitter suspended the Gateway Pundit's account on February 6, 2021, and it was later deplatformed entirely. The EIP notes that during the 2020 election, all of the major platforms made significant changes to election integrity policies, policies that attempted to slow the spread of specific narratives and tactics that could potentially mislead or deceive the public. The EIP was not targeting foreign disinformation, but rather domestic speakers. The EIP also indicated it would continue its work in future elections. Great. The EIP also called for expansive censorship of social media speech into other areas such as public health. 
the EIP stated that it united government, academic, civil society, and industry, analyzing across platforms to address misinformation in real time. When asked whether the targeted information was domestic, Stamos answered, it is all domestic. And the second point on the domestic, a huge part of the problem is well-known influences. You have a relatively small number of people with very large followings who have the ability to go and find a narrative somewhere, pick it out of obscurity, and harden it into these narratives. Stamos further stated, we have set up this thing called the Election Integrity Partnership. So we went and hired a bunch of students. We're working with the University of Washington, Graphica, and DFR Lab, and the vast, vast majority we see, we believe, is domestic. And so I think much of, a much bigger issue for platforms is elite disinformation. The staff that is being driven by people who are verified that are Americans who are using their real identities. Starbird of the University of Washington, who was on a CISA subcommittee and an EIP participant, also verified the EIP was targeting domestic speakers, stating... Now, fast forward to 2020, we saw a very different story around disinformation in the U.S. election. It was largely domestic coming from inside the United States. Most of the accounts perpetrating this, they're authentic accounts. They were often, often blue check and verified accounts. They were pundits on cable television shows that were who they said they were. A lot of major spreaders were blue check accounts, and it wasn't entirely coordinated, but instead... It was largely sort of cultivated and even organic in places with everyday people creating and spreading disinformation about the election. The Virality Project. The Virality Project targeted domestic speakers' alleged disinformation relating to COVID-19 vaccines. The Virality Project's final report, dated April 26, 2022, lists DeResta as principal executive director and lists Starbird and Masterson as contributors. According to the Virality Project, vaccine mis- and disinformation was largely driven by a cast of recurring actors, including long-standing anti-vaccine influencers and activists, wellness and, and lifestyle influence, pseudo-medical influencers, conspiracy theory influencers, right-leaning political influencers, and medical freedom influencers. The Virality Project admits the speech it targets is primarily domestic, stating, foreign actors' reach appeared to be far less than that of domestic actors. The Virality Project also calls for more aggressive censorship of COVID-19 misinformation, it calls for more federal agencies to be involved through cross-agency collaboration, and calls for a whole-of-society response. Just like the EIP, the Virality Project states that it is multi-stakeholder collaboration that includes government entities among its key stakeholders. That's World Economic Forum language. Wow. The Virality Project targets tactics that are not necessarily false, including hard-to-verify content, alleged authorization sources, organized outrage, and sensationalized misleading headlines. Plaintiff Hines of the Health Freedom Louisiana was flagged by the Virality Project to be a medical freedom influencer who engages in the tactic of organized outrage because she created events or in-person gatherings to oppose mask and vaccine mandates in Louisiana. The Virality Project also acknowledges that government stakeholders, such as federal health agencies and state and local public health officials, were among those that provided tips and requests to access specific incidents and narratives. The Virality Project also targeted the alleged COVID-19 misinformation for censorship before it could go viral. 
Tickets also enabled analysts to qualify tag platform or health sector partners to ensure their situational awareness of high engagement material that appeared to be going viral so that those partners could determine whether something might merit a rapid public or on-platform response. The Virality Project flagged the following persons and or organizations as spreaders of misinformation. Jill Hines and Health Freedom Louisiana, One American News, Breitbart News, Alex Berenson, Tucker Carlson, Fox News, Candace Owens, The Daily Wire, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Dr. Simone Gold and America's Frontline Doctors, and Dr. Joyce Mercula. The Virality Project recommends that the federal government implement a misinformation and disinformation center of excellence housed with the federal government, which would centralize expertise on mis-disinformation within the federal government at CISA. So then this goes into kind of the law and the analysis. It's the preliminary injunction standard. So it kind of gets into uh, some technical stuff just about like what the preliminary injunction is supposed to do, what their likelihood of success is on the merits, their First Amendment claims, lots of uh, Supreme Court references, you know, whether there's going to be sex and success. And I think that that's kind of what they said that, yeah, there's, uh, very good likelihood that they will have success, which is why it was granted. Talk about the White House defendants. Plaintiffs allege that by use of emails, public private messages, public private meetings, and other means, White House defendants have significantly encouraged and coerced social media platforms to suppress protected free speech on their platforms. The White House defendants acknowledge in oral arguments that they did not dispute the authenticity of the content of the emails plaintiffs submitted in support of their claims. However, they allege that the emails do not show that the White House defendants either coerced or significantly encouraged social media platforms to suppress content of social media postings. White House defendants argue instead that they were speaking with social media companies about promoting more accurate COVID-19 information and to better understand what action the companies were taking to curb the spread of COVID-19 misinformation. There's an interesting paragraph here. Explicit threats are an obvious form of coercion, but not all coercion need be explicit. The following il illustrative specific actions by defendants are examples of coercion exercised by the White House defendants. A, cannot stress the degree to which this needs to be resolved immediately. Please remove this account immediately. B, accuse Facebook of causing political violence by failing to censor false COVID-19 claims. C, you are hiding the ball. D, Internally, we have been considering our options on what to do about it. E, I care mostly about what actions and changes you are making to ensure you're not making our country's vaccine hesitancy problem worse. F, this is exactly why I want to know what reduction actually looks like. If reduction means pumping our most vaccine hesitant audience with Tucker Carlson saying it does not work, then I'm not sure it's reduction. G, questioning how the Tucker Carlson video has been demoted since there were 40,000 shares. H, Wanting to know why Alex Berenson had not been kicked off Twitter because Berenson was the epicenter of disinformation that radiated outward to a, the persuadable public. We want to make sure YouTube has a handle on vaccine hesitancy and is working toward making the problem better. Noted, it was never a vaccine. Noted that vaccine hesitancy was a concern. This is shared by the highest, and I mean the highest levels of the White House. Wow. Highest levels of the White House. I. After sending to Facebook a document titled Facebook COVID-19 Vaccine Misinformation Brief, which recommends much more aggressive censorship by Facebook, 
Flaherty told Facebook sending the brief was not a White House endorsement of it, but this is circulating around the building and informing thinking. Jay, Flaherty stated, not to sound like a broken record, but how much content is being demoted and how effective are you at mitigating reach and how quickly? K, Flaherty told Facebook, are you guys effing serious? I want an answer on what happened here and I want it today. L, Surgeon General Murthy stated, we expect more from our technology companies. We're asking them to operate with greater transparency and accountability. We're asking them to monitor information more closely. We're asking them to consistently take action against misinformation super spreaders on their platforms. M, White House Press Secretary Saki stated, we are in regular touch with these social media platforms and those engagements typically happen through members of our senior staff, but also members of our COVID-19 team. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. Saki also stated one of the White House is asks of social media companies was to create a robust enforcement strategy. And when asked about what his message was to social media platforms when it came to COVID-19, President Biden stated, they're killing people. Look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated and that they're killing people. Oh, Saki stated at the February 1st, 2022 White House press conference that the White House wanted every social media platform to do more to call out misinformation and disinformation and to uplift accurate information. P, hey folks, wanted to flag the below tweet and I'm wondering if we can get moving on the process of having it removed ASAP. Q, how many times can someone show false COVID-19 claims before being removed? R, I've been asking you guys pretty directly over a series of conversations if the biggest issues you are seeing on your platform when it comes to vaccine hesitancy and the degree to which borderline content, as you defined it, is playing a role. S, I'm not trying to play gotcha with you. We are gravely concerned that your service is one of the top drivers of vaccine hesitancy, period. T, you only did this, however, after an election that you helped increase skepticism in and an interaction which was plotted in large part on your platform. U, seems like your dedicated vaccine hesitancy policy isn't stopping the disinfo dozen. V, the White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield's announcement that the White House is assessing whether social media platforms are legally liable for misinformation spread on their platforms in examining how misinformation fits into the liability protection process by Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. These actions are just a few examples of the unrelenting pressure the defendants exerted against social media companies. This court finds the above examples demonstrate that plaintiffs can likely, likely prove that the White House defendants engage in coercion to induce social media companies to suppress free speech. Yeah, so that's easy. It's interesting. So it's about coercion, the flagging, the Surgeon General defendants. So he goes into kind of these rationales. I suppose I could read that. And they're all just involved in suppression, coercion, according to the judge. Nerve centers. Um, let's see. Virality, State Department. There's a lot of defendants. Then there's kind of a joint... Uh, Joint participants, they seem to be acting independently, but there's a whole series of rationales and arguments about that. Then standing, they have standing, injury in fact, plaintiff states, and the individual plaintiffs, and he kind of goes into his conclusion. I mean, this will probably go just go all the way to the Supreme Court, I suspect. Take forever, which is unfortunate. 
Here's an interesting piece. Although the COVID-19 pandemic is no longer an emergency, it is not imaginary or speculative to believe that in the event of any other real or perceived emergency event, the defendants would once again use their power over social media companies to suppress alternative views. And it is certainly not imaginary or speculative to credit that defendants could use their power over millions of people to suppress alternative views or moderate, contra- moderate content they do not agree with in the upcoming 2024 national election. At oral arguments, defendants were not able to state that the switchboarding and other election activities of the CISA defendants and the State Department defendants would not resume prior to the upcoming 2024 election. That's a, Let's state that again. At oral arguments, defendants were not able to state that the switchboarding and other election activities of the CISA defendants and the State Department defendants would not resume prior to the upcoming 2024 election. In fact, Chan testified post-2020, we've never stopped. Notably, a draft copy of the DHS's Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, which outlines the department's strategy and priorities in upcoming years, states that the department's plans to target inaccurate information on a wide range of topics, including the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the return of U.S. support to Ukraine. Plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits in their claims that there is a substantial risk that harm will occur. It is not imaginary or speculative. Plaintiffs have shown that not only have the defendants shown willingness to coerce and or give significant encouragement to social media platforms to suppress free speech with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic and national elections, they have also shown a willingness to do it with regard to other issues, such as gas prices, parody speech, calling the president a liar, climate change, gender, and abortion. Yeah, it's just a massive censorship program through a bunch of weird acronyms nobody knew about. On June 14th, 2022, the White House National Climate Advisor, Gina McCarthy, at an Axios event entitled A Conversation on Battling Disinformation, was quoted as saying, we have to get together. We have to get better at communicating. And frankly, the tech companies have to stop allowing specific individuals over and over to spread disinformation. The complaint and its amendments shows numerous allegations of apparent future harm. Plaintiff Bhattacharya alleges ongoing social media censorship. Plaintiff Koldorf alleges an ongoing campaign of censorship against the GBD and his personal social media accounts. Plaintiff Cariotti also alleges ongoing and expected future censorship, noting shadow banning his social media account is increasing and has intensified since 2022. Plaintiff Hoff, plaintiffs Hoff and Hines also allege ongoing and future censorship injuries. It is not imaginary or speculative that the defendants will continue to use this power. It is likely. Wow. The court finds that plaintiffs are likely to succeed on their claim that they have shown irreparable injury sufficient to satisfy the standard for the issuance of a preliminary injunction. And then there's equitable factors and public interest, injunction specificity, specificity, excuse me, then class certification. They were trying to bring a class action on it. And he denied the class certification. The judge did. But he went through the full analysis. So all the standards you have to do, numerosity. But then we go, however, working class definition, let's see, however, without a working class definition, with the issues concerning other Rule 23 elements, the court finds class certification inappropriate here, regardless of the adequacy of the individual plaintiff's representation. Thus, for the foregoing reasons, 
the court declines to certify this matter as a class action. Conclusion. Once a government has committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it has only one place to go, and that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear, Harry S. Truman. The plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits in establishing that the government has used its power to silence the opposition. Opposition to COVID-19 vaccines, opposition to COVID-19 masking and lockdowns, opposition to the lab leak theory of COVID-19, opposition to the validity of the 2020 election, opposition to President Biden's policies, statements that the Hunter Biden laptop story was true, the opposition to policies of the government officials in power, all were suppressed. It is quite telling that each example or category of suppressed speech was conservative in nature. This targeted suppression of conservative ideas is a perfect example of viewpoint discrimination of political speech. American citizens have the right to engage in free debate about the significant issues affecting the country. Although this case is still relatively young, and at this stage the court is only examining it in terms of plaintiff's likelihood of success on the merits, the evidence produced thus far depicts an almost dystopian scenario. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a period best a period perhaps best characterized by widespread doubt and uncertainty, the United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian ministry of truth. Wow. The plaintiffs have presented substantial evidence in support of their claims that they were the victims of a far-reaching and widespread censorship campaign. This court finds that they are likely to succeed on the merits of their First Amendment free speech claim against the defendants. Therefore, a preliminary injunction should issue immediately against the defendants as set out herein. The plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction, document 10, granted in part, denied in part. So that's the fourth day of July, 2023. Terry A. Dowdy, D-O-U-G-H-T-Y. And then I think this was paused. It's moving up the chain of uh, the appeal. So and it's supposed to be held by, it's, uh, the appeal is supposed to be considered by a three-judge panel sometime soon. I don't know if they've set a date, but I'll keep you aware. But just the facts in this are astonishing. They're not really covered very well, I think, by certain people. I mean, maybe Matt Taibbi, Schellenberg, some of these guys are doing it right, but uh, it's not. Obviously, the corporate media is a total joke and just stock full of losers who don't want to comprehend or actually consider the enormity of the government uh, suppressing free speech, your constitutional rights, the Bill of Rights. It's a concern for everybody. It's not a partisan political thing. They try to turn it into a partisan political thing, but the Bill of Rights is nonpartisan. It doesn't state a political party. It's about everybody, and it should be valued by everybody. That just shows how many moral lepers and trash people, garbage people there are in the United States now, when this was used to be considered just absolutely sacrosanct. And now it's just like, oh, it's all politics. It's a conservative thing. Our Republicans are for it. So stupid. All right. I'll keep you apprised of this. It's Missouri v. Biden, part three. It'll be a final. I, there's also a bunch of analysis, but I don't feel like going into it. But just watching these pundits talk about this issue, you can just see just the sophistry and... Uh, deception and manipulation of the public like they're like propagandizing people about these very important issues i mean they're pretty clearly uh, important to every american especially me i got censored i mean i was taken down i didn't even get notices i just like you're gone baby 
So I'm not like a well-known name, like some of the guys in here that uh, are in this, but uh, just the fact that your government's willingly involved in this. And it started right after the election that Biden got 81 million votes. I mean, it should tell you a lot. Thank you for listening.